This is the eighth message that we've attempted to bring to you concerning the life of Joseph. We begin in Genesis chapter 37. As we begin to read of Joseph's life, he comes to our attention at the age of 17. He is a wonderful and beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ in more ways, I'm sure, than we could uh, be able to see in this study. It seems like there's always more that we find as we read and study it more uh, have over the years. As we come to Genesis chapter 44, we find that Joseph is now about 40 years of age. So we find uh, 22 to 23 years have gone by from Genesis 37 to Genesis 44. I think we've been able to begin to get, hopefully, a clear picture of this man, Joseph. He was a remarkable man. And of course, he would have to be a remarkable man to be such a beautiful type of the Lord Jesus Christ in so many different ways. He was a man that was God-fearing. He was a man that God was with. That's emphasized early on in Genesis chapter 37. We find that he lived close to the Lord. We find he did not change once he got to Egypt. He was the same Joseph in Egypt as he was in Canaan. He respected the Lord. He had a reverence for the Lord. And the Lord blessed him abundantly. We see that Joseph went from the pit, you might say, to the throne. He was delivered and exalted miraculously through the providence of God. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was fearfully and wonderfully made, being conceived in the womb of a Virgin Mary. And from that position, we find the Lord was exalted into glory to be on the right hand of the majesty on high. Joseph went from a slave, a servant, to a governor. He is the governor, as we look at him here in chapter 44, over all the land of Egypt. Only Pharaoh is higher than uh, Joseph in terms of power and authority. Joseph ruled the kingdom through his word. He managed the kingdom uh, of Egypt through seven years of plenty being followed by seven years of famine. Now, we haven't finished the seven years of famine yet. We're two to three years into the time of famine, but the famine has grown worse. But through the wisdom that Joseph has displayed, he has carefully managed things where he actually has been dispensing food to a perishing world. The Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And it's only through the bread of life that we have our spiritual hunger and thirst taken care of. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 to his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What's the source of that filling? The source of that filling is Christ. He is the bread of life. He's also the fountain of living waters. So here we just kind of give a little summary how we found Joseph in Genesis 37 as a 17-year-old boy, despised, hated, rejected, and sold unto the Gentiles. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, he was hated, he was envied, and he was delivered to the hands of the Gentiles. Now, Joseph rules the kingdom by his word just like the Lord Jesus Christ rules his kingdom by his word. The Lord's people uh, throughout the ages uh, have recognized that the scriptures have been given to us by divine inspiration. Uh, 
And we have the Bible before us, and the Bible should govern our lives. Just like Joseph governed the land of Egypt by his word, the Lord Jesus Christ governs his kingdom and his church by his word. It should govern my life, your life, and he should govern his house. This is his house. This is his church and his kingdom. And his house and kingdom should always look to him as the head and as the governor and uh, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So we see the display of wisdom in Joseph's life early on. But you really begin to see it also in how he dealt with his brothers. Now, prior to chapter 44, we know the first time that his brothers came down to Egypt to buy corn, Joseph actually accused them of being spies. Well, that wasn't true. And Joseph knew it wasn't true. And then he wound up putting them in ward, W-A-R-D, that's a kind of a type of prison, for three days. It might appear to us that Joseph was being cruel, that Joseph was being harsh. Let's not forget what they did to Joseph. Uh, we need to see the wisdom of Joseph and how eventually he's going to bring his brothers full circle. He's going to bring his brothers to full repentance. And we'll see this in this 44th chapter of Genesis. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, of course, is wisdom personified. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, the apostle says, in, in him, that is in Christ, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The apostle says that wisdom and knowledge are treasures. And these treasures should be more valuable to us than the treasures of the natural man, which, you know, is gold and silver and precious stones, etc. In reading the opening chapters of Proverbs, we find where the wise man Solomon compares the benefit of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom to gold and silver and precious stones, but shows it to be of far greater value, you see. So when you come to that realization in life, then the Lord has blessed you to have your eyes open to what's really, really important and what really is valuable. So we see that Christ is wisdom personified. There's a prophecy of Christ found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, And a rod shall come forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch, that's spelled with a capital B, shall come forth of his roots. That's just simply saying that the Lord Jesus Christ would come through the lineage of David. Jesse being the father of David. Christ would come through the lineage himself of David. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And there are six parts of that Spirit of the Lord that shall rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Isaiah is speaking about. And the very first thing is the Spirit of Wisdom. He says, The Spirit of Wisdom and the Spirit of Understanding, the Spirit of Counsel and the Spirit of Might, the Spirit of Knowledge and the Spirit of the Fear of God. Six things here are listed, but the number one thing is wisdom. And as you study the life of Christ in the four Gospels, you see wisdom personified, displaying his wisdom every single day that he lived here upon the face of this earth. In the 11th chapter of Romans, you'll find where Paul is dealing with how God dealt with the Jews and the Gentiles. How that God took the Jews and illustrated them as being a natural uh, olive tree. And because of their rejection of him, we find that some branches was broken off and then some branches were grafted in 
of a wild olive tree, which represents the Gentiles. So when you read this chapter, it's pretty amazing how this transition took place, how God took the gospel and the kingdom from the Jewish people and gave it to the Gentile people. So toward the end of this chapter, the apostle Paul just breaks out with this, uh, uh, you know, exclamation point, you might say. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God's wisdom was on display and how he handled all of this. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in chapter 1 and 2, Paul has uh, been trying to get the church at Corinth not to put their trust in the wisdom of the world, but in the power of God. But in chapter 2, verse 7, he says this, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which he uh, foreordained before the foundation of the world. He said, there is a wisdom of God that we preach. It's in a mystery. But it was ordained of God before the foundation of the world. He says, for if the princes of this world, that is the people of authority and um, power of this world, had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So that tells me that the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, eventual crucifixion, is what this wisdom is all about. God devised, he devised a plan, if you want to use that expression. I don't usually like to use the word plan because we use the word plan. Uh, It might work out, it might not. But the plan of salvation that we find taught us in the word of God, that could not fail, okay? It could not fail, was that God would send forth his son into this world. Man had broken God's law. Man would have to satisfy God's law. So how can this be? When he looked, he saw there was none to help. There's not a man on this earth that was qualified for this job apart from his son. So the second person of the Godhead was sent into this world by God the Father and took upon himself humanity. He became flesh and blood with a human nature with the exception of sin so he could become the perfect offering and sacrifice in our room instead to save us, his people, from their sins. That's the hidden wisdom that God ordained before the foundation of the world. He said, had the princes of this world known this, which means they did not know this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Wisdom. We see this wisdom in Joseph's life. We see it from the very beginning when he was 17. We have seen it continuously right on up here now uh, to chapter 44. That's why he was made governor over Israel, excuse me, governor over Egypt, because Pharaoh recognized the wisdom in this man. This man had interpreted his dreams. It was coming seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And he says, you need to set somebody over the kingdom to manage this so that you can get through these seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, well, who is any wiser than this man? This man of Joseph. Even Pharaoh recognized the wisdom of Joseph. So Joseph is dealing with his brothers. He knows them. They do not know him. Just like we know God because God first knew us. And we love God because God first loved us. And Joseph is dealing with his brothers. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And that first time he sends them back to Canaan's land with food, but he keeps Simeon. And he gives them back the money they paid for the food with. Remember, we tried to emphasize you can't buy grace. (laughs) And so 
this might seem like an unusual thing of Joseph, but remember, we're looking at the wisdom of God that was given unto Joseph, Joseph being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept Simeon as a guarantee that they would come back again and bring his younger brother, their younger brother, Benjamin. He had inquired about this. He says, and don't come back if you don't have Benjamin with you. They get back. They tell their father Jacob about this. And Jacob is distraught. He's glad to see them back. There's the food. But now, not only has he lost Joseph, now he doesn't even have Simeon. And they want to take Benjamin. It took the famine getting really sore and Judah speaking up back in Genesis chapter 42 and 43 that Jacob now has agreed they can go back the second time. As they go back the second time, there are three serious concerns. Number one, how can they explain the money being in the, in the mouth of those sacks? They knew they didn't put it there. How can they explain that? And when the surface looked like why they had stolen it. Number two, would Simeon truly be released? Number three, how would Benjamin be treated? As we closed out the last session from Genesis 43, we see all three concerns were taken care of. As soon as they got there, the steward explained, I had your money all along, took care of that. He immediately released Simeon, took care of that. And we see that Joseph very openly, very publicly, very clearly shows more love and affection to Benjamin than he does the other brothers. In fact, he invites them all to his house for a meal, for a great feast, as if a famine didn't even exist. This is more than those brothers could have ever anticipated or expected. They sat down to a tremendous feast. When they were fed, we find where Joseph gave Benjamin five times as much <laughs> as he gave the other brothers. So now that concern's been taken care of. Not only is Benjamin well received, he's received better than they're being received. So now Joseph sends them back. He's going to send them back. But he's going to put some money back in those sacks once again. And this time, he's going to put a silver cup in the sack of one of those brothers, and the silver cup goes in the sack of his youngest brother, Benjamin, who is his only whole brother. They know nothing about this. That's how chapter 44 opens up. Now, they left there feeling good and feeling great about themselves, but you see, they still have not come to the point where they have confessed their sins and iniquities. That still is going to come. In Proverbs 28 and 13, it says, Whosoever uh, you know, faileth to confess his sin, uh, you know, is still going to have to reap the, you know, the consequences of that. Uh, but he that confesseth his sin and forsaketh them shall find mercy. They have not done that yet. The sin of what they committed against Joseph and his father and their father Jacob has not been acknowledged, it's not been confessed, and it has not been re fully repented of at this point. But now they leave and they're going back. They've got food. They've got Benjamin. They've got Simeon. Uh, they're going back. But Joseph tells his steward, he says, you go after them now. Shortly after they left, you go after them and you apprehend them and you say these words. Let's notice this here. In verse 4, when they were gone out of the city, not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have you rewarded evil for good? Joseph being good to them, he gave them food. But now, the appearance-wise, it looks like once again, <laughs> somehow or another, they wound up with the money, and this time, there's a silver cup 
that one of them have taken. And we notice this is not just an ordinary cup. It's not an ordinary silver cup. It's Joseph's cup. Joseph's cup. Is not this it is which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? You've done evil in so doing. And he overtook them, and he spake unto them these same words. Notice the, the steward is 100% obedient to the command of Joseph, just like we all ought to be. And he says unto them the same words, and they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these things? God forbid that thy servants should do according to this thing. Behold the money which we found in our sacks' mouths. We brought again to thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? They're, they feel like they're totally innocent. And they are. With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also be my Lord's bondmen. They are saying, if you find it, let him be a servant and let the rest of us die. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. The steward does not accept their uh, you know, proposal. He said, we find the cup. He'll be my servant, and the rest of you can go free. Now notice this expression right here. Verse 5. Is not this it, it in which my Lord drinketh, talking about the cup, and whereby indeed he divineth. That expression, divineth, means maketh trial. Who's making trial for his brothers? Joseph is. He's causing them to go through some things here. But it's all part of the wisdom that he's exercising to bring his brothers to a full confession and repentance of how they treated him and his father Jacob. They didn't steal the money the first time. They didn't steal the money the second time. They did not take the silver cup. But, and they're convinced of that. But we notice here in verse 11, Then they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground and opened every man his sack. And he searched him again at the eldest and left at the youngest. Now this has always been the order of things. You notice in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel goes to Jesse to find out which one of his sons that God has chosen to be the king of Israel, we notice that Jesse brings all of his sons out, starting with the oldest and working down. In fact, he left the youngest in the field. And Samuel said, is there not another? He says, well, there's the youngest. Remember earlier when they said at uh, that great feast and meal in Joseph's house, Joseph sat around the table, beginning with the eldest, and worked away around to the youngest. Emphasized last time, there's no way in the world he would have known that. He could not have known who was the oldest and who was the youngest, except with divine wisdom. So they started the oldest. They worked their way down. They get to the youngest. They have not found the silver cup. There's no mention about the money at this point. They've not found the silver cup. But they get to the youngest, Benjamin, and they find the silver cup. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ had a cup, didn't he? What did the Lord say in Matthew chapter 26? He goes to the garden against him and he prays to the Father. He says, Father, be thy will, let this cup pass. But if not, thy will be done. There's never been a cup like that cup that Jesus Christ had. We find in Matthew 20 where the mother of Zebedee's children, that's James and John, come to the Lord Jesus Christ with a request. And she says, let my sons be on your, one on your right hand and one on your left. The Lord says unto her, you know not what you ask. They're thinking about a physical kingdom. A literal physical kingdom, they're, 
they're ignorant that the kingdom Christ is establishing is a spiritual kingdom. He says, you know not what you ask. If they had known, they wouldn't have asked. The Lord then asked them a question. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I drink of? And are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm to be baptized with? And they said, yes. They answered quickly. Again, they don't understand what that cup and baptism represents. That cup, my friends, that Jesus Christ had, he was sucked from, was a cup of sufferings and sorrow unlike anything any man's ever experienced before in the history of mankind. It's referred to as a baptism because of the abundance of it and the overwhelmingness of it. Just like when you're baptized, you're covered with water. You're immersed down in the water. And so the sorrows of the Lord Jesus Christ were overwhelming unto him. And that's the baptism of sufferings. He said, yes, you, you can drink of the cup and you can be baptized of it, indicating there's going to be sufferings in your life as my disciples. It won't be to the same extent of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it will be because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is the very first disciple to suffer a martyr's death? It's James. Acts chapter 12, it's James. Who's the last to suffer or experience death? It's John. Now, John died a natural death, but John experienced sufferings. When you read the book of Revelation, where is John? He's on the Isle of Patmos. Why is he on the Isle of Patmos? He's there because of tribulation. He has been put on the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner. Yes, they drink of that cup. They be baptized with the, with the baptism, but not to the same extent, of course, because no one's ever drank the cup that Jesus Christ drank to the extent that he drank it. It's a silver cup. Now, silver in the Bible is a picture of purity. Look in Psalms 12, 6, and 7, and David says, For the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them. Talking about his word. His word is pure. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, Solomon says, the word, Every word of the Lord is pure. All the Lord's words are pure words. It's also a picture of redemption. And you go look at the construction of the tabernacle, you're going to find a lot of silver in the tabernacle, aren't you? You're going to find a lot of silver and a lot of gold over there. Silver is a very precious metal, only next to gold. But I've always liked this verse in Psalm 68, 13. When the psalmist says, though you have lain, that's L-I-E-N, though you've lain among the pots, that's a picture of our depravity and our condition by nature. Though you have lain among the pots, which means you're like this, not like this, that, 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 not like that, you're just like this. When Adam fell, he didn't just stumble around in the dark. When Adam fell, he fell all the way. Not 99% of the way, he fell all the way, you see. And though you've lain among the pot, yet ye shall be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. Silver's a picture of redemption. Gold's a picture of glory. It's a silver cup that's under consideration. Look at Numbers chapter 10, verse 1. God tells Moses to command Israel to make two trumpets of what? of silver. In contrast to ram's horns that were used a lot for trumpets, these are the silver trumpets. They had to be blown in a manner and way that properly proclaimed the commands of God. And that's what the gospel of Jesus Christ did. The pure and adulterated gospel has to be blown by a silver trumpet. So they find out Benjamin has it. You can imagine the fright. You can imagine the shock. I guess you'd have to imagine it. That they felt. And notice in verse... 13, then they rent their clothes, which is always in the Old Testament a picture of great distress or repentance. When they rent their clothes, when they tore their clothes, it symbolized their great grief, their great distress, 
and also usually repentance. They rent their clothes and laded every man his ass. That is, they had to put the corn back on the animals and return to the city. Now notice, the steward had told them earlier, in whose bag I find that silver cup will be my servant, and the rest of you can go free. They could have went on without Benjamin. <laughs> but they don't. They return back to the land of Egypt. Verse 15, 14. And Judah, and I want you to notice the important role of Judah. We noticed that last time, did we not? When you read about Judah in Genesis chapter 37, he's the one who makes a suggestion not to kill Joseph, but to sell him for profit and for gain. He says, what benefit is if we take his life? Let's just sell him for gain. And the last time they saw him, he was going off down toward Egypt. That suggestion was made by Judah. In chapter 38, you're going to find where Judah committed an act of immorality. In chapter 38, that's Judah. But beginning back here in chapter 42, you're going to find where Judah is a different man. His life takes a change. Remember the prophecy that Jacob gave him, Judah, found in uh, the 49th chapter of Genesis. When he gets to Judah, he says, for the law, you know, the, uh, he, he speaks about how the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver between his feet. It's a picture of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ who came through the tribe of Judah. So it's Judah that's going to speak up. Notice, in Judah and the brethren. See, it could have read like this. And his brethren came to Joseph's house, which they did. But it specifically says, And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. Now, this is the third time they have come before Joseph and avowed themselves more than fulfilling the prophecy that Joseph gave them in Genesis 37, right? But this time, they don't only bow, they, they just fall flat of their face. Fall flat of their face before him, and they're falling upon the mercies of the governor of the land, Joseph, who they do not know is Joseph. Do not know him to be the brother, but he knows them. Get the picture, if you will. They fall flat on the ground. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that you've done? What ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine, that word divine once again meaning that maketh trials. <laughs> They're they getting ready to, ready to go through another trial right here. And Judah said, here's Judah again. Judah his brother came, now Judah said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? And how shall we clear ourselves? He asked three questions. Then he says, God has found out the iniquity of thy servants. That just simply means at this point, I believe, that Judah recognizes he's a mouthpiece, a representative of all his brothers. God knows everything we did all the way back, way, way back in Genesis chapter 37. <laughs> God has found out our iniquity. You see, you live in a world in which people say there's no absolute truth. If there's no absolute truth, there's no consequences. But the Bible teaches absolute truth and there are consequences of denying truth and walking contrary to truth. But his brothers haven't learned that yet, but they're about to. He says, God has found out. You've ever, have you ever heard the expression, your sins are finding you out? You know where you find such an expression of that? You find it in the Old Testament. It's biblical. Your sins will find you out. God is not blind. God doesn't turn his head. God doesn't wink his eye. All these things are being taken account of by the judge of all the earth. And Judah says, God has found out all of our iniquities. 
He knows how we mistreated Joseph. He knows, he knows how we hated him and ended him. He knows how we sold him to the Ishmaelites and saw him leave there out of sight on the way down to Egypt. He knows all of that. These are, thir- these are twi- uh, these, excuse me, um, these brothers are frightened and scared half to death. Well, I'd say they're scared 99 cent to death <laughs> at this point. He said, we're both thy Lord's servants, we and also with whom the cup is found. And he said, God forbid, this is Joseph, I should do so, but the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant, and as for you, get you up in peace unto your father. He says, Benjamin's staying here. He's going to be my servant. You leave and you go back to the land of Canaan. And now the last 17 verses of this chapter, from here to the end of the chapter, is the longest speech by any man in the book of Genesis. No other man, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, doesn't matter. This is the longest speech of anybody in the book of Genesis. It's 17 verses long. It's also one of the most moving speeches you'll find anywhere in the entire Bible. You're going to find where Judah here is going to fall upon the mercies of Joseph as the governor of the land. This knows just a few of the things here. Then Judah came near unto him. Notice this. <laughs> he came near unto Joseph. How important it is for all of us to come near to the Lord. <laughs> In James chapter 4, you find where he says, let us draw near to God and he'll draw near to us. Now, notice this is a practical application of drawing near to the Lord. By nature, it's impossible for us to draw near the Lord. Look in John 6 and 44. No man cometh unto me except the Father which sent me. Draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. It's impossible to come near to the Lord. There's no desire, there's no interest, there's no life of anybody to draw near to the Lord until they've been drawn by the Lord near to him in the work of the new birth. And then in our experience here, We're encouraged to draw near to the Lord. What will happen? If we draw near to the Lord, the Lord will draw near to us. Now, isn't that that beautiful? Judah draws near to Joseph. The 73rd Psalm, the last verse, David said, It was good for me that I should draw near to the Lord because I put my trust in the Lord God to draw near. Jesus said this about some people in the 15th chapter of Matthew. He said, how well did Isaiah prophesy of you? He says, you draw near to me with your mouth and honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Notice, they've drawn near physically. They've drawn near with their mouth. They've honored him with their lips. Where's the heart? He says, your heart's far from me. He knew the condition of the heart, you see. You'll read in the book of Luke, where another Judas, this is Judah. I'm going to read about Judas now. Judas leads a, a band of Roman soldiers into the Garden of Gethsemane to apprehend the Lord Jesus Christ. He drew so near, he kissed Christ on the cheek. That was a kiss of betrayal. He was near the Lord, wasn't he? But he drew near to the Lord to betray him. He drew near to the Lord to identify him as the one the soldiers would come to take out of the Garden of Gethsemane. He did it with a betrayal kiss. Judah drew near, drew near to Joseph. He said, O my Lord, let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ears. Aren't you glad that God has hearing ears? In 1 Peter 3, 12, the apostle Peter says, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. 
Isaiah 59, 1, it says, The Lord's ear is not hard that it cannot hear, and his arm is not short that it cannot save. Aren't you glad about that? But he says, But your sins and iniquities have separated you from me. That's why sometimes we may not feel the nearness of the Lord. It's because our sins and our iniquities have separated us in fellowship from God himself. The Lord said, My ear is not hard and my arm is not short. We do not believe in a short-armed God. We believe in a God whose arm is long enough. He can reach all the way from glory, all the way from heaven, right down to this earth and reach no, unto you no matter how low you may be or how low you may feel, my friends. He's able to do that and draw you near unto him and carry you in his bosom. Aren't you glad about that? His arm was long enough to reach Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. It was long enough to reach the thief on the cross. And it was long enough to reach me. It was long enough to reach you. And I tell you, when he reached me, he had to come a long ways. <laughs> How about you? How about you? And he's got that hearing ear. 1 John 5 and 14, he says, And this is the confidence we have in him. And we know that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And we know if he heareth us, we have the petitions that we ask of him. The promises is found in the word of God, of God having a hearing ear. When you say, I, I try to pray, but I don't know if God ever hears me. Just banish that from your mind, my friends. He hears everything you say. <laughs> he says, let me have your ear. As you read these last 17 verses, you will find that Judah mentions the word, Lord, eight times. He mentions the name Father 13 times. He's falling upon the mercies of Joseph, just like we need to fall on the mercies of an everlasting God. You know, when you go to court, if you've been charged with something, you can plead not guilty. But if the court finds you guilty, what do you usually do then? I'm going to fall on the mercy of the court. <laughs> I'm glad there's a Lord in glory, my friends, got far more mercy than the courts of this land has. And you see, we're all guilty, just like they were guilty. They were guilty of everything. And Judah says, God has found out all of our iniquities. In the book of Romans chapter 3, when Paul is describing our depravity, he says in verse 9, that we've all come under sin, both Jews and Gentiles. He comes to verse 19, he says, we have proven that all have become guilty before God. His brothers are guilty before him. But Judah is making a plea for mercy. Let's, turn, let's go. He begins to review things that Joseph already knows. You know, there's not a thing Judah tells Joseph that Joseph didn't already know. There's not a thing you tell the Lord and Jesus Christ in prayer. Not a one thing you tell God in prayer that God didn't already know. You've never informed God about anything. Now, Brother Tim speaking here Sunday morning said there were, made the statement there were some things that he was growing up that he didn't really want mom and daddy to know. <laughs> and as time has gone on, we found out a few of them. <laughs> Not just with him, but with David and Mark and Sarah, if they're listening. We got all four of you in here. And sometimes I found out about it. I said, I wish I didn't know. I wish I hadn't found out about it. I'd have been better off not to know known that. Not that it was all that bad, but still, I was kind of glad I didn't know about it back then. But I'm telling you, there's not one thing you bring before Jesus Christ in prayer that he's not already acquainted with. Not one thing. He understands everything. And we need to understand, we're guilty before God. We cannot establish any merit before God. We cannot establish any innocence before God because there is no merit and there is no innocence. We've all become guilty 
before an all-righteous God. He's reviewing all these things with Joseph. He hadn't told Joseph one thing he didn't already know. But I want to look at verse 30. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. Notice the expression, his life is bound up in the lad's life. You know what that means? That means Benjamin was everything to Jacob. And Jacob was everything to Benjamin. Over here in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 25, you'll find a woman the name of Abigail comes to David and intercedes on behalf of her husband because her husband is an evil man and he mistreated David's servants. And when David found out about it, David was so enraged about the matter, he's going to get his men and go down there and take matters into his own hands. But Abigail intercedes. And when she's before David, she says these words. She says, I know that my Lord, or excuse me, the Lord shall establish a sure house with my Lord. I want you to notice the difference between the Lord and my Lord. The Lord shall establish a sure house with my Lord, talking about David, and he said, my Lord David shall fight all the battles of the Lord, talking about God himself, and it says, for my Lord is bound up in the life of the Lord. (laughs) When you study David's life, was that not true? David was a man after God's own heart. It was was God, my friends, who gave David the courage and the strength to slay a bear and a lion. It was God who gave David the strength to uh, cast that stone that found the forehead of the giant Goliath. It was God who gave David protective care. In fact, the Bible used this word several times, and God preserved David's life. It was God who protected him from Saul. It was God who protected him from Absalom. He was bound up, my friends, in the life of God. Oh, that we might all be bound up in the life of God. Isn't that wonderful? In a sense, we all are from the standpoint of God's electing grace before the foundation of the world. When God foreknew you and chose you in Christ before time ever began, you become bound up with God himself. When Christ died for you on the cross, it's because you were bound up in the life of the Lord. Everything we uh, have ever experienced in the hand of God is because we are bound up in His love and His providence, His kindness, His compassion, His mercy, and His grace. Uh, You know, I just uh, discovered this (laughs) in studying this chapter. I've read this chapter 40 times, 41 times I've read this chapter. And I just discovered this little verse right here, the 41st time in going through it. (laughs) I can't tell you how good it made me feel. I can't tell you how great I felt when I read that expression and began to research it and see what it really meant. It just simply means, my friends, that you mean everything to God. How does that make you feel? You mean everything to God. And God ought to mean everything to us. You know, in conclusion tonight, look in verse 32. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then shall I bear the blame of my father forever. Remember, that's what he told Jacob. He says, You sit him with me. I'll be surety for him. I'll take the blame. If I don't bring him back, I'll take the blame. And I mentioned before, I think that brought very little comfort and consolation unto Jacob. But in Hebrews 7 and 22, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ became our surety of a better testament. Now notice what uh, Judah Judah is willing to do. 
He says, now, now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide and sue the lad abomin to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? He, he remembers seeing the grief of his father when he and the brothers came and they fabricated that story how that uh, a wild beast had slain uh, Joseph. I mean, they, they brought his coat there and let Jacob's mind take over from there. He says some wild beast has destroyed him and they saw the sorrow in their father's life. Judah does not want to see that again. He knows if they go back without Benjamin, he quotes Joseph the words earlier here. It says, it'll bring about sorrow to my father's death. Judah had to feel somewhat responsible for what he feels at this time was Joseph's death. He does not want to be responsible for leaving Benjamin behind. He's willing to take the place of Benjamin. What do you see in that? <laughs> what do you see in that? Aren't you glad there was a man named Jesus? As, see, if he takes Benjamin's place, that means he's, must, he must experience separation from his father. He will not be able to go back to Canaan. He'll be separated from his father. The Lord Jesus Christ is willing to be separated from the father. The father sends him. Jesus is willing to leave heaven in the presence of the father to come here to this world. Willing to separate himself from the father and take our place so the day would come when we would never be separated from the father. He became surety for us. You see that, I trust. He became a guarantee to the Father that He would take our place. He'd pay our price. He would uh, redeem us from the law of sin and death. And He'd pay the ransom price and bring us all home to glory. Judah says to the father Jacob, I'll bring Benjamin back. If not, I'll bear the blame. In this case, that very well could have happened. But it's not going to happen. <laughs> and the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be separated from the Father to take our place so that we could be with the Father. Psalms 22, Jesus Christ cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was willing to go through that experience so that we would never be forsaken of the Father. When you begin to read chapter 45, you will see this is more than Joseph can take. What did Judah do? He reached the ear and the heart. I mean, Judah, he reached the ear and the heart of Joseph, didn't he? When you pray like Judah prayed, when you confess like Judah confessed, <laughs> it'll reach the ears and the heart of your Father, which is in heaven.